welcome to all our listeners. This is our second podcast for Keeping Up with the Chemos. This is an SGO Education Committee initiative that we are going over new drugs in GYN oncology. While we're calling it Keeping Up with the Chemos, it's actually keeping up with any and all new agents that are on the market for our gynecologic oncology cancers. And we are going over today to Zotemab and Doten. I am Tracy Lynn Hall with Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, where I'm a gynecologic oncologist. And joining me today, we have... Hi, this is um, Dr. Judith Smith, also in Houston, Texas, down the street from Dr. Hall at um, McGovern Medical School. And today's podcast is going to be focusing back in on the administration steps we have to prepare for administration on tosopinib vidoitin. I'm Shannon Weston, professor at MD Anderson Cancer Center, just across the street in Houston, not down the street from Dr. Smith. Um, I'm excited to be here with you to, to chat about TV. Hi there. My name is Julia Canestraro. I'm the assistant attending optometrist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, we've seen a lot of patients on this drug and we're excited to chat to you about it. Hi, my name is Erin Hickey-Zaholsky. I'm a clinical oncology pharmacist, um, an assistant professor at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. And my clinical practice site is in the Gynot Clinic at VCU Massey Cancer Center. All right. So once we have selected a patient to receive TZO, what is it that we need to think about when we're going over that consenting process and patient education? So to start, there are many, many resources that we can offer our patients when we are uh, giving them the opportunity to sign informed consent and really empower them about all the information they need to know to look out for while they're on to sodomab bedotin. The first thing I like to do is get together some resources. The drug company has some really great long versions and short versions with the main uh, adverse events to look out for. They've also got an eyedrop checklist that they can print out. We can print out as many copies as they want and they can check off each cycle. And then I also arm them with an eyedrop cover sheet that I make myself so they know exactly what each eyedrop is for. I must counsel side effects for tosotomab vidotin are definitely this eye toxicity, right? So these patients have really never encountered a medication with the risk of having significant eye toxicity. So I tried to put in perspective the rate at which these events occur. Our other two guests can probably go into more detail on. And then every time I counsel on a scary side effect, I say what we do to help and prevent treat that. So the three eye drops uh, that these patients will receive are a steroid eye drop, dexamethasone, suspension or solution, a vasoconstrictor, bromonidine, and then a lubricant eye drop. So spelling these out ahead of time, how to use them is really important. My other must counsel side effects are the bleeding risks that tosotomab vidotin does carry. And those were most commonly found to be uh, nosebleeds or epistaxis. So side effect management that I never thought I'd be going through was uh, how do you manage a nosebleed at home? <laughs> um, so we definitely go through that. Beyond that, we do talk a little bit about nausea, fatigue, and arthrogenous and myalgias. That's great. It's super thorough. I would just pipe in with a few like little extra things that I always highlight. I think visual toxicity is super scary for patients and often their mind goes immediately to, am I going to go blind? And so making sure we always try to really highlight that although these are super 
um, common, they generally are resolved very quickly with mitigation and holding and dose reduction. And that really only um, 6% of patients discontinued their tisodomabidotin due to uh, visual toxicity. And only a few had visual acuity changes like 4%. So that's one of the things. The other thing that we found for some of our young patients that have cervical cancer is not being able to wear contacts is a huge deal. So making sure that they're aware of that and get themselves new cute eyeglasses if they have the means because we really want to avoid, you know, contact use during during treatment. This is all great. And I'm I'm happy to hear that everyone is that the patient is hearing this three times around. So that's good. We we educate them on the exact same thing, really drive home the point that you do not go blind on no patients in the study had gone blind while taking the drug and that changes are reversible once the medication is stopped. I do let them know that things can fluctuate while you're on treatment. So vision may change, it may fluctuate. Some days are better than other. The artificial tears really do help with any blurred vision associated with dry eye. And then sometimes even patients will need change in their prescription. So their need for glasses, and we can get creative about that. And so I just reassure them that it's something that we walk through together. I may add just one more we didn't touch on, but the peripheral neuropathy risk is definitely present. And I think that one is so important for patients to be able to advocate uh, for themselves on due to its potentially irreversible uh, nature. So it can take a very, very long time to resolve. So I think encouraging them to let the team know about it so that dose reductions can potentially be made is super important. And just to kind of follow up on once you receive that order, the initial order, and you're reviewing the patient's profile, are there anything we need to think about as far as dose modifications in regards to renal liver function or drug interactions? Yes, there absolutely are considerations for uh, renal and hepatic impairment and then also some drug-drug interactions. Um, so when considering renal and hepatic impairment, I it's helpful to think about pre-existing organ dysfunction and then renal and hepatic toxicity that's potentially due to the drug and consequential management. For pre-existing organ dysfunction, it's all or nothing in the package insert. So there are no dose reductions with the PK information that we currently have. For toxicity during therapy, a dose reduction um, may be appropriate. So just to kind of reiterate, creatinine clearance less than 50 or ESRD uh, with or without dialysis has not been studied. Um, so the patient should really have a uh, creatinine clearance above 30. And then for uh, hepatic imp impairment uh, with a total bilirubin above 1.5 times the upper limit of normal, that's when uh, you should be elevated. Um, as far as drug-drug interactions, there are important DDIs to be aware of. For the tosodomab itself, uh, the antibody undergoes catabolism into peptides and amino acids, so we're okay there. But the MMAE, um, when it's unconjugated, is metabolized by CYP3A4, which raises a red flag for everyone because co-administration with CYP3A4 inducers and inhibitors could increase or decrease the concentration of MMAE, respectively, so influencing toxicity and efficacy. So watch out for your azole antifungals, watch out for a lot of your anti-epileptics, and finally, ask a pharmacist. Well, when we get ready to clear our patients, I see my ladies every three weeks for chemo clearance and I check labs as well as go over performance status. Julia, what are some things that you think of from an eye care perspective regards to chemo clearance for the ladies? 
to start, patients need a baseline eye exam uh, before starting treatment. And so you just want to make sure that that's a thorough exam, including a dilation. You want to identify any potential, if the patient is not 20-20, that you, you need to figure out why. Um, and note any pre-existing ocular conditions so that moving forward, we can parse out if a change in vision is from something that already existed or if it's from corneal toxicity. Shannon, is there anything else you consider when we do chemo clearances before TISO? No, I mean, I think just like chemo, right? Because sometimes when we're giving a new drug, you know, we think, oh, this is different and, and the patients won't have the standard chemotherapy side effects. But they can have the nausea, they can have the fatigue, they can have, you know, other issues like anorexia. So making sure you're pursuing all of those things and supporting patients where you can, I think can be really helpful. So don't get so focused on the rare or not rare, but the specific and this, the uh, TV centric stuff, but also commonly, you know, commonly experienced adverse events as well. So Aaron, I know this is not your wheelhouse as the clinical pharmacist on the team, but we uh, wanted to talk a little bit about, is there any special caveats we need to talk to our colleagues in the oncology pharmacy that are in the production side in preparing the tisopinavondoitin for administration? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so luckily, there are many um, fluids that tisopinavondoitin can be placed in. So it appears that it's stable with normal saline, D5W, and LR. Our pharmacy personnel will need to dilute each vial and then inject it into um, a bag of said diluent to a final concentration of 0.7 to 2.4 milligrams per ml. So a pretty wide range there. And then that's kind of gently verted to mix the solution. So I think that that gentle um, part is important as we put those stickers on the bags as we send it over to infusion and transport <laughs> to the infusion center and, you know, make sure that the our infusion nurses know also not to be shaking the bags too much. Sometimes they have a habit of making sure things are mixed well before they administer them. And this would not be one to do that. <laughs> I also think it's worth noting that if you're having the patient bringing in the eye drops from home, uh, the infusion pharmacy will want to know about that because they review these order sets as a whole to ensure safety. So to know that this is a patient-administered med and that the dispensing is going to look a little different is important for pharmacy and infusion nursing. So once they get to the infusion center, I know we don't have a, our infusion nurse team here tonight, but I uh, know all of us have interacted closely with them. Just kind of give a recap of what's important during that administration time and preparing for the administration to start. Yes, you can start us off, Aaron. That would be great. Okay, great. So I think the, the high points uh, when I prepared our infusion nurses um, with an in-service were pointing out these eye drops. So the way that we have it built in our plan is that the nurse will administer dexamethasone 10 minutes prior to the tisosodabath infusion, followed by bromonidine five minutes after that, and then the infusion will start. In the study of tisodabavidotin, uh, patients did not receive anti-emetic prophylaxis unless they had episodes of emesis or vomit. Emesis or nausea uh, with a previous administration. So you could give secondary prophylaxis. However, NCCN does categorize this as a low risk uh, medication. Um, so my point here is that uh, utilizing a single antiemetic on day one could also be appropriate. So the pre-meds, that's everything for the nurses. The infusion is over 30 minutes. The patient must wear a, a cold pack over the bridge of their nose and both eyes 
during the infusion and for at least 20 minutes after. Making sure that cold pack stays cold throughout the 10 minutes before the infusion and then the 10, uh, 20 minutes after. Is there anything else that they should be monitoring for in that post-administration period, Dr. Weston, or anything you'd be concerned about? We want them to be administering the the drops and, and be monitored for about 20 minutes after. The other thing I don't know that we've talked about, and I'm sorry if I missed it, but is the cooling pads, right? So putting those cooling pads on and making sure they stay on after the infusion, I think that's another really critical point. And certainly they can change them out as needed if, if, if they're not as cool. And we always kind of try to spin that to the patient as a little spa treatment. But yeah, those are the major things. There's not a lot of acute toxicity that occurs. So usually the patients feel fairly well after and and can go home fairly quickly once you kind of meet all the metrics that we discussed. Okay. And in our next podcast, we're going to be going into what needs to happen when they get home and the follow-up and monitoring while at home before the next cycle. But before we wrap up, can we just have a quick take-home message for the, today's podcast? Dr. Weston, why don't we start with you this time? I mean, I think you've heard the importance and I think you all have lived the importance of making sure patient counseling happens appropriately to set these patients up for success because there are unique toxic we need to kind of get out in front of those early and make sure the patient's aware and reports any issues and also isn't terrified to start this new agent. And Dr. Canistaro, your take-home points for today's administration. Just in terms of the baseline eye exam, the importance of a very thorough exam, just taking into account any other ocular conditions the patient might have and tracking that moving forward. And Erin, bring us home with your take-home message for today. I think it's so important that, you know, every member of the team and most importantly, the patient feel empowered with education when they receive their tosotamab, vedotin infusion. So I think we've talked a lot about strategies to do this. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us for this podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on our next one. We're going to go over the follow-up and monitoring before between cycles. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on the go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.